Welcome, traveler. Come in out of the cold, rest by the fire, and listen as my brother and I regale you with a discussion about our favorite hobby, Dungeons and Dragons. We've been playing this game separately and together for years now, and we're here to talk about some of the things that we love about this game and some of the things we've learned from it. That's right. We're here to make sure that you have every advantage at the table as a player. And to increase your proficiency in the skill of being a dungeon master. Welcome to Bardic Twinspiration. everyone, my name is Rob and welcome to Bardic Winspiration, a topical Dungeons and Dragons podcast where my brother and I sit around and discuss the world's most popular tabletop role-playing game. I have been a dungeon master for going on seven years now in person and virtually. I am a writer of adventure modules and articles pertaining to the topic of Dungeons and Dragons. And I'm here to talk to you from a dungeon master's perspective about the game and some of the things that we love and some things that occasionally frustrate me and that I think can be improved upon. And I'm joined today by my brother. Hi, I'm Steven. I have been a DM exactly one time in the seven years that I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons. Hope to be starting my next campaign soon, but I have been a player off and on again throughout all of those years. And I am here to uh, hopefully provide a little bit of entertainment and draw all of this knowledge that Rob has gotten as he has been in pursuit of this hobby for the last several years so that it can hopefully be of some benefit to you. And also, you're here to give a little bit of a player perspective, because as much as I've played this game, it's usually from behind the screen. And you've been in several of my games and have been an outstanding player in some of my games. I brag on you and your skills. Well, I do know that you have been locked into the Forever DM position. You have one consistent campaign where you've been a player every Saturday night for a couple of years now. But considering that you usually play in three to four campaigns a week, I'd say the Forever DM really stands out. Now, just for my own personal benefit, which do you prefer? Do you really wish that you had the opportunity to be a player more? Or are you really set and it would be difficult to relinquish that control and that creative flair that you get to wield as a dungeon master? You know, I think that I am one of the weird ones. I really prefer running the game as opposed to playing it. You find a lot of people online out there complaining about being stuck in the role of the guy who's in charge and never gets to play from the player's perspective. But when I play, I miss being the dungeon master. I understand that completely because why limit yourself? If you can be a proficient dungeon master, why instead of being six to a dozen to two dozen different characters in the session, would you limit yourself to just one? Also, you're a control freak. That is a good point. I don't have a comeback or an argument for that at all. Uh, but that is some of it. I like the diversity. I like the range. I like the variety of being the dungeon master as opposed to just playing one character constantly. But the downside to that is my characters tend to be killed 
by the adventuring party of heroes. And I never get to see them grow and develop the way that a player character might. You know, and the irony there is in the one campaign that I ran, you went down in the first session and you were the only PC that did die during that campaign. So you, you got some pretty bad luck there, man. Um, but that I know that the, got lucky. <laughs> the real appeal for this, I'm sure for you, is that as a DM, you get to be a storyteller. Um, and we're going to talk about story uh, in a later episode. I've already got plans for it. Uh, stay tuned because there's a lot of content that we have planned coming out in the future. But that is not the topic of tonight's conversation. Tonight, we want to talk about role-playing. After all, this is a role-playing game. It's but... in the title. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and specifically, we want to talk about role-playing and combat. Now, combat is one of the major aspects of the game. Um, I think you said something yes. about... Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, there are three pillars to Dungeons & Dragons as described by Wizards of the Coast, you know, the people that make the game. There is social interaction, Mm -hmm. There's exploration, yep. and there is combat. So theoretically, combat takes up a third of your time playing the game if you are equally prioritizing those. But the game itself doesn't lend itself to social interaction and exploration as much as it does to combat. So let's face it, D&D has its roots as kind of a strategic war game. Uh, and it's, it, does. it really shows that it began more of as a board game than as a role-playing game. And the role-playing became the emphasis later on. Uh, and I know that personally, when I started playing the game, I had never role-played in anything in my life. But what I sat down to the table to do was fight stuff. And see, I hadn't done any more role-playing than playing Skyrim or video games of that nature where I could take control of a character and level them up and make them the way that I wanted and have them interact with the world uh, in a way that was satisfying to me. But I didn't have much of a, a background in running around killing stuff tactically or strategically. You know, the irony there is that Skyrim was is one of my favorite games of all time still, and it certainly was at one point in my life. And I still played Skyrim to kill stuff. You know, one of the problems, I think, one of the frustrations is that Dungeons and Dragons combat is often like combat in Skyrim. You know, Skyrim has these massive stories and these believable NPCs who have their own goals and feel very real. But the moment that you get into a fight, all of that stops. Right. Yeah. And I and think a lot of people play Dungeons and Dragons the same way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, been a problem at a bunch of tables that I've seen before. You roll your dice for initiative and the role play stops. It's now all about dice and math and hit points. And it becomes a lot less about your character, their motivations, the situation and the story. I would argue that during combat, when there are stakes, when lives are on the line is when role playing should really be taking the forefront it shouldn't be an afterthought it shouldn't be placed on the back burner this is the exciting part of the game this is where the role playing has its chance to shine i like to think of it as like the action sequence in the movie right this is the part that you put in the trailer this is the part that you get people excited about that you draw people in with 
And there are some very important character moments that can happen over the course of conflict. Uh, you take a look at movies like Die Hard with Bruce Willis and Hans Gruber at the top of the skyscraper. They're definitely in combat, but you learn a lot about their characters in those moments because Bruce Willis is role-playing as the character in <laughs> Die Hard. This is a bad example if I can't <laughs> name the character in Die Hard. <laughs> we can do one of those awkward edits in where it's where, where you just drop his name in, you know, like John McClane. <laughs> I can find some sort of robotic voice to drop in there. No, but that that really is a frustration, right? Because you're role-playing, you're role-playing, you're role-playing, and the dungeon master says, roll for initiative. And then all of a sudden the role-playing stops. The enthusiasm kind of dials back. As you roll initiative, you start waiting for your turn, you make an attack, it hits or it doesn't, and then you wait another several minutes for your turn to come around again. And you may not even really be paying attention to the other players' turns because they don't involve you, and there's nothing dramatic happening. You know, you made a point a second ago when you were talking about those scenes between John McClane and Hans Gruber that it wasn't just that you were learning about the characters during the combat scene. It was that you were learning about those characters through the conflict. And I think that that is just a, a, it's a small difference, but it's a nuance that lends itself a lot to the game of Dungeons and Dragons. There's a lot of opportunity that isn't being properly capitalized on. And that is on both sides of the table, right? There's going to be potential for, the characters to really reveal more about themselves and their motivations. And then it might be coming from the DM as well, to taking it as an opportunity to reveal something more about the villains or to uh, add a little bit of intrigue to the plot. Exactly. And we're going to get into both today, but I think we should pr probably start with the player characters because uh, let's face it, there are more players out there in the world than dungeon masters. That is true. So let's talk about PC motivations in general, and then we'll kind of drill into what that looks like in combat. So, Rob, what is a character's motivation? Motivation is the thing that you are role-playing, right? Role-playing mm -hmm. in and of itself is the act of pretending to be someone else. And someone else, that person has goals. Right. Everybody has goals those goals motivate and inform your actions in combat and outside of combat. So this is something that a lot of people uh, should be thinking about from the inception of their character. I'll admit that I have had some very well-formed ideas and some very poorly formed ideas during the inception of my character, but the mechanics of the rules as written on your character sheet give you an opportunity, an actual dedicated place to review this. That's right. Fifth edition came up with personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws. These are aspects of your character that should have been there and should have been something that had been considered in other editions. But in fifth edition, they slapped that on the front of the character sheet to emphasize the importance of these things. Right. And I am so glad that they did because honestly, that was not at the forefront of my character creation process in Pathfinder. No, I remember you coming up with a detailed and well-thought-out background and backstory for your character, but 
when it came to how to apply that in future events on the fly as things are happening around the character pathfinder didn't really have your back on that one no but you know what it, i made it through and actually I, that's still one of my favorite characters but uh, uh you know whenever any sort of situation came up where a decision had to be made i just went with the edgiest possible option rogues man rogues <laughs> It helped to fall into a stereotype because it was my first time playing, and there is definitely nothing wrong with stereotypes. But and there's for nothing those wrong of... with rogues. <laughs> there's something wrong with rogues, but that's in a different my way. My first character was also a rogue. I don't know if we talked about that. Uh, we, I don't think that we have. Hey, twinsies. Uh, my, <laughs> <laughs> now, my, uh, my very first character that I played uh, sober um, was a arcane trickster rock gnome named rattle chance uh pretentious sounds just like you i totally so, ripped off lucian lachance from the elder scrolls shamelessly uh, <laughs> that makes sense uh dark brotherhood edgy i, mm -hmm. I should have thought of that a lot quicker so let's talk about if you don't want to adhere to stereotypes and you do want to make a character that's a little bit more unique you can use this system that 5e has incorporated of personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws. So let's break those down and talk a little bit about each of them and how they apply to your character. So the first one is personality traits. So personality traits are intended just to be something exceptionally unique about your character. The world of D&D, regardless of your setting, is populated by a bunch of rogues. But what makes you different from them? How are you unique? What makes you special? Um, and you can learn a lot about someone by what makes them unique. I think the example in the player's handbook is I've read every book in Candlekeep, the famous uh, immense library in the Forgotten Realms. And I mean, when you read every book in a library, what does that tell you about the kind of person that would do that? Well, that's actually a little bit layered because one of the things that it tells you is they're going to be very well informed, but it can also imply something like I set goals for myself and I stick to them. Right. You don't read every book in a library by accident. No, that takes a lot <laughs> of intent. Um, and possibly even record keeping. So you don't read the same book twice. Yeah. So it's something that one is really good. I like it because it does have a couple of extra layers to it. It doesn't just say, you know, oh, I have an extremely high intelligence score and therefore am smart. It says I have access to Candlekeep. I have the intent to gain as much knowledge as possible. And I have dedicated a ton of time in pursuit of that goal. It can also be something fun and quirky about your character, but it's just a little something that is unique about them and that gives you something to bring up in conversation or just a different way that you perceive the world or react to it. And the Player's Handbook recommends that if you're having trouble finding a personality trait for a character that you're creating, just start off by looking at their ability scores and emphasize a high ability score or perhaps compensate for a low one you know if you have a low strength score are you insecure about that or what are what steps are you taking to improve and compensate for that area 
and what deeds might you have done? Yeah, I mean, it could be something even a little quirky, like, you know, maybe I'm a gnome that is a little self-conscious about his height. And I'm always trying to, you know, I wear platform shoes. I'm always standing on tiptoes or, you know, you know, I try to surround myself with people who are shorter than me. (laughs) Um, Anyway, but just something quirky, something informative, and most in particular, something that separates your character from the other ones who may share other similarities. The next thing on our list to talk about is ideals. And I know that you said you're on record as saying this is a particularly important one. I think this is arguably the most important thing about your character. When you're talking about role-playing, this is more important than what race you are, than what class you have chosen for yourself. This should be the core of your character. The ideal is your worldview, or it should inform your worldview. It is one idea, one concept that you will never betray, that you are willing to make sacrifices for, and that offends you when it is broken. Uh, You could have the ideal uh, death before dishonor is a great one, that you value your reputation and your honor above even your own life. Right. Or going another direction, there's another example in the book here that says, I am a free spirit and no one tells me what to do. You have now a character who is fiercely independent and will fight to maintain that independence at all costs. Maybe even a little rebellious. Yeah, possibly so. Uh, You could have uh, someone who is characterized by greed and will do whatever it takes to become wealthy and won't part with a single coin unless it is a dire situation. Or one of my favorites, blood is thicker than water. That no matter what family does, that you are going to have families back. Uh Basically, the ideal is going to dictate something that is incredibly important to your character above all else, and something that they will risk everything else either in pursuit of or defense of, whether that is money, whether that is power, whether that is family, whether that is fame. It's the thing that is integral to your character's psyche and their pursuit. I would argue that this is perhaps the most important aspect of your character to make sure that that you are role-playing at all times. You should always consider when choosing how to behave in a situation, how your actions are informed by this core principle, this ideal. Sometimes whenever I'm making a character, I give myself more than one ideal. I think that you know, there can be a lot of things that are important to a character. Although if you do opt to take more than one ideal, I would certainly prioritize them so that you know at all times what the most important thing is to your character when faced with a decision or a dilemma. And after ideals come bonds. Now bonds are meant to be something to tie you to the setting that your dungeon master is running in. It is a noun, a person, place, or thing that is particularly significant and valuable to your character in particular. Right, and the obvious choice there, uh, (laughs) for those few adventurers who still have family, that's always a very good one. I thought it was required that every player character's parents at least had to die. Yeah, that's okay. Only rogues have to be orphans. The rest of them is just optional. 
Oh, uh, this um, is the thing that I get from being the dungeon master is I don't know these player rules. <laughs> so a bond could be a connection to your mother who is still waiting at home and you're trying to send back money whenever possible to support her. Uh, it could also be your allegiance to the a certain organization or guild in which you find yourself. It could be the family sword. You know, handed down from generation to generation to the firstborn son to carry with you into battle. Yep. It could be, uh, it could be your hometown, right? That you grew up in, where everybody knows you and where you know everybody. Yeah, there's no place like home, right? Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things to do, and this does require a little bit of collaboration early on in the character creation process, but I've particularly enjoyed games that I've run where. PCs, player characters, have bonds with each other where they have an existing relationship with another member of the party and they have a very strong feeling towards that person. Maybe it's a good one, maybe it's not, but I've played in at least one campaign where we had two brothers who were playing alongside each other. We had another campaign kind of a master and commander situation. They were a, an officer and a soldier who were fighting on the same side in a war. That is a great one. And yeah, like you said, your bond doesn't have to be a positive relationship. It can certainly be a negative one. If you take a look at the Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya has a bond to the six-fingered man. It is someone that he hates and that he, he has been pursuing over the course of his life so that he can take revenge. Inigo is definitely bonded to that character. Yeah, and of course... Inigo is also bonded to Vizini because Vizini is the one that rescued him from the gutter. Uh, He's bonded to the final sword his father made. Sure. Uh, The Princess Bride has tons of it. If you look at any character in a movie or video game, you can usually find some of these aspects, but bonds are usually particularly easy to identify because they are one of the most tangible aspects of your character's motivation. Flaws sometimes are equally easy to identify flaws Um, i think are the most interesting part of your character it is on your character sheet that (laughs) you have an achilles heel (laughs) not just a low strength score on your sorcerer you have on your character sheet a way to interfere with your character's psyche i used to describe this and i don't describe it this way anymore but i used to say that your flaw is a bullet in the dm's gun is something that they can use specifically to make your character, not you the player, but to make your character a little more miserable, to get them to act in a way that is self-destructive or at the very least not in their own best interest. Yeah, as a player, I still feel that way about it. Uh, It feels like when I am making my character, I am making a hero. They're going to have some exceptional attributes. They're going to have tons of skills. They're going to have a very interesting personality and a compelling backstory. But I Every have Superman to give them a, a weakness. Exactly. I have to give them a weakness. It's the one part of your character sheet that actively works to your detriment. And I love that. I am disappointed when a DM does not take advantage of my flaw to mess with me. Uh, I think that characters who have great strengths and great weaknesses are the best ones. Sure. I mean, take a look at popular superheroes. Of course, we mentioned Superman and his kryptonite, but uh, Batman has daddy issues. 
you know, he has sure. trauma. He has PTSD from an event that scarred him as a child. Yeah, he's actually afraid of bats. Yeah. At least in the movies. And that's what a good flaw is. It is a compulsion or it is a bad habit or it is a vice or it is a crippling fear that prevents you from acting in a heroic way. Right. Uh, I don't, I know that one of my characters actually used denial. It's like there is truth is staring you plainly in the face, but you <laughs> cannot, one. you cannot cognitively resolve that because it would be too traumatizing to do. And so therefore you just pretend as if that does not exist, that you omit that part of reality in your own mind so that you can keep going, but it causes some very glaring inconsistencies. Uh, in the Ox Venturers Guild D&D Real Play podcast and in their live shows, uh, Luke Westaway's half-orc bard, Dob, um, I don't know if this is on his character sheet, but it is obviously a flaw of Dobbs is that he doesn't know the value of a gold coin. Uh, <laughs> and it's a running joke that the party never has any money because everyone always pays Dob because he's the charismatic person. He's the front man. He's the one interacting with the NPCs. So when they hand the party the reward, they hand it to Dob and it is gone by the time the next session starts. <laughs> Sometimes literally thrown into a lake. Oh, gosh. Um I'm going to give some more examples too, because again, flaws are my favorite part of the motivation of a character. I tend to write a lot of tragic characters or tra characters with tragic backstories. Like I said, you know, I've been a rogue. I don't have a lot of characters that had parents. <laughs> um, and I actually, I had some characters who killed their own parents, which, you know, makes Ooh. for a lot of, it made for On a purpose? lot of guilt. No, uh, I had a, a warlock who was uh, who actually became possessed and killed his own parents uh he was in the curse of stride campaign because i thought that that was grim and gritty of a backstory in preparation for the type of story i was about to be participating in so guilt was his flaw uh, i went ahead and gave him another one i made him a borderline alcoholic as a, another means of coping with that guilt so it was either Popular. a flaw or a repercussion that came out of that flaw then I also had a character who, who saw himself as very heroic and aspired to be the greatest hero that the land had ever seen. Uh, and his flaw was overconfidence. That guy almost died so many times because he wanted to charge into the front lines, regardless of how many people he was up against. Mm. So flaws are brave to the point of stupidity. Oh, he was. Yeah. Intelligence was his dump stat. Just absolutely no question. I love that character. <laughs> Thank you, the rest of my party, for keeping him alive. <laughs> so we're talking about all these things so that you can have a clearer idea of what your character's motivations are, what their goals are, what behaviors they might exhibit. And they need to be consistently displaying these behaviors even after initiative is rolled. But it's not just the player characters who can role play once an encounter has begun the monsters and the npcs can also count right remind me what npc stands for again non-player character characters that's right yes. these guys have their own backstories and motivations and while it doesn't necessarily behoove you as a dm to give every town guard you know a life story 
it does help out to remember that they also have goals and they have a ideal outcome when it comes to this uh, combat encounter. And their top priority shouldn't always be the death of the player characters. I would argue rarely is it the death of player characters if you want to play them believably. Uh, People don't, I mean, even villains rarely just want the death of other people. And sometimes they do, but usually that is a byproduct of their pursuit of a different goal. Sometimes social reform in a way that very much benefits them, or perhaps monetary gain in a way that very much benefits them. I mean, it has to benefit just them because they're villains and they do bad things. Think of uh, the supervillains in Batman the Animated Series. They are rarely out specifically to kill Batman. Usually Two-Face or the Joker or Poison Ivy or whoever he's facing in that particular episode uh, is trying to perpetrate some other scheme, and that is their goal. When Batman arrives, their goal changes to stopping Batman from stopping them. Uh, I mean, they'll happily go out of their way to try and beat the bat, but that's not why they're there. And they will usually continue trying to achieve their primary objective in spite of Batman's interference. And even then, when Batman puts the kibosh on their evil scheme, their next priority is usually to escape. You know, they want to make sure that they live to plot and scheme another day. And I think villains in your D&D games should typically act in a similar fashion if you want them to be believable. Unless they have a vendetta against a particular member or members of the party, or they've been paid or ordered to assassinate the heroes, they're probably not out for blood. Think about the original Star Wars trilogy, episodes four through six. It's just the sad tale of Darth Vader trying to reconnect with his son. (laughs) That was his top priority, you know? He didn't want to kill Luke. He wanted Luke to join him. And to rule the galaxy as father and son. Yeah, sure, exactly. Yeah, Uh, but I mean, he low-key wanted to overthrow Palpatine and uh, take over the Empire for himself, I think. Yeah, sure. But, you know, those that that was probably his ideal, but Luke was his bond. And I think that that is something that it very much bears considering when you have major NPCs, when you have uh, arch villains or anything like that, you might it might be worth it to just go ahead and give them personality traits, ideals, bonds and flaws. And if you'll notice, uh, Darth Vader is a great example. Uh, Luke is clearly his bond, right? He has a son. And he fights Luke a few times over the course of episodes four through six and never kills him. And it's not because he couldn't. I mean, you think about the scene with Luke in the Cloud City hanging on to that little piece of tech, missing a hand that Daddy Beerus has just chopped off. And his lightsaber. We've seen Vader. Yeah. Right. He's unarmed. We've seen Vader force choke people to death. Yeah, from a different starship. <laughs> it's not beyond his capabilities. There is no reason why Luke walks out of that fight alive because Darth Vader was not primarily interested in just killing Luke. He had an agenda, and that agenda needed one Luke breathing. Right. So this is definitely stuff that you would want to consider for your major NPCs, but 
there can also be motivations for minor NPCs or normal villains. If those villains are, let's say, sentient humanoids, you know, with uh, families and uh, goals, you know, self-preservation is going to be high on their list. Uh, maybe it's a town guard who is tasked with defending the castle, or maybe you have, you know, something even more complicated than that, like a hostage situation. You can also have uh motivations of non-sentient non-humanoids even beasts have stakes in combat right uh currently i'm employed as a as a pest control guy so (laughs) (laughs) knowing how uh animals think and what animals want actually helps me do my job and most living things want shelter access to food access to water and a safe place to hide so if you are encountering a bear in the woods it's probably not going to fight the player characters to the death it may not even attack unless someone is already kind of hurt or straggling apart from the rest of the party or if the bear is particularly hungry but once it realizes that the party is more trouble than it's worth it's probably not sticking around because there's a lot of things that are an easy meal for a cave bear that don't have levels in paladin and know how to smite and even though it's just a bear you're role-playing that bear in a believable way. Right. And you change the setting a little bit. Maybe you find the bear in its den because you are searching for something some or someone missing from the town, suspect that it might be in there. When the bear is in its lair, in its cave, in its den where it has cubs, where it's supposed to feel safe, it has a different stake in that fight. You have come into its house it is threatened by you and it may not have an easy clear line of escape. In that case, it is more threatened and it will behave differently. Right. You've got a and the same- proverbial caged animal with its back against the wall. You take that same bear, put it in a different situation, emphasize the same ideal of self-preservation and you're going to see it play out in two different ways. And of course, humans are a little more complex than beasts of course um and dnd doesn't just feature humans and beasts it features aberrations and demons and fiends that operate on different planes of existence and on different planes of thought and intellect they're playing 4d chess some of these guys the players might just be an opposing pawn that are beneath the concern of your big bad evil guy of the villain of the campaign and he might not care whether the heroes live or die Maybe he's after an artifact that the paladin is carrying around with him. And he doesn't need to kill the paladin. He doesn't need to kill the rest of the party. He just wants to have his minions get that artifact and run. Right. And depending on what that villain has at its disposal, you know, maybe the way is to send in a doppelganger. Or maybe the way is to cast Wall of Force followed by several fireballs. Uh, it just depends on whatever the <laughs> path of least resistance to get that artifact. Looking like a true wizard. <laughs> the main thing to remember, guys, is just that every creature in a combat has a goal, and every action that they take in or out of combat should be in service of that goal. Characters are going to have different b- traits, bonds, ideals, and flaws, and they're going to have things that they are willing to sacrifice and things that they are not willing to sacrifice in order to see those goals accomplished because they have priorities and that same priority can lead to different actions in different situations 
and dungeon masters, the same is true for every creature that you are running. You may not have to go through all the work to come up with a personality trait, ideal, bond, or flaw for every single creature in the combat, but maybe have a flaw for the whole group or an ideal for the whole group or at least for the leader of the bunch if you're dealing with group combat that will make them act in a unique but certainly believable way. Role-playing during combat adds to the verisimilitude of your world. Ooh, long word. Long See, word. I have... <laughs> I can't remember the wrong words like that. I have to make an easier way to remember this sort of stuff. And so I have a horrible way, Boy. a horrible little acronym to remember how to take this into account. Once again, the qualities that make up a character's motivation are their bonds, flaws, ideals, and traits. That's B-F-I-T. So whenever I'm thinking about my player characters in their decision-making process, I ask myself, what action befits my character or this NPC in a given situation. You told me this before we started recording, and I genuinely begged you not to include that acronym in the cast. And here it is. Here so it is. Delighted. And you're editing this, so I'm sure you'll make sure that it makes it in. Of course I will, because it's clever, catchy, and genuinely, I think, helpful. <laughs> so Let's talk about probably my favorite example of a quote-unquote hero and a quote-unquote villain role-playing through a combat encounter. Right, because those, those qualities can be very muddied depending on the complexity of your character. That's right. Among my favorite combats in cinema is Pirates of the Caribbean, Curse of the Black Pearl, Will Turner versus Jack Sparrow in the Port Royal blacksmith shop. Agree 100%. It is the best part of that movie, in my opinion. It's, it's all it's downhill the best part from of the series, really. <laughs> it's the best part of any pirate movie that I've watched. Let's just go with that. Uh, because there's such a long list of pirate movies that we've watched. And you've seen the best one. Do you really need to continue? <laughs> I don't know. If they make a fifth one, I'm there for it. All right. So breaking down that scene a little bit, Jack Sparrow is hiding in the blacksmith shop from the guard in Port Royal because mm -hmm. he is a pirate and he is to be hanged. Commodore so Norrington is out for is, blood. What is Jack's goal at the start of this combat escape hide it's and escape. escape it's escape and save his own life uh an admirable goal will turner stumbles upon him in the shop discovers him by the misplacing of his blacksmith's tools and recognizes that jack sparrow is the pirate that all of the guards are looking for who threatened miss swan so what is Will Turner's goal in this combat? You would think him being the hero, it might be his civic duty to turn in the brigand, but no. No, it is to apprehend and to punish the man who threatened the love of his life. Importantly, it's not to kill Jack, like one might think, because Will Turner isn't that kind of guy. And often in... Dungeons and Dragons, you find even the nicest and noblest of heroes may have the gut reaction just to kill something they don't like. Right. We, there's the murder hobo stigma that afflicts all player characters. It's something that we most of us recognize and fewer of us fight against. So we've established the goal for both Will Turner 
and for Jack Sparrow. Mm -hmm. Now, every action that they take across the course of that fight should be in service of those goals. Agreed? Oh boy, is it. Yeah. And it's worth noting, Will is so invested in this fight because he is bonded to Elizabeth Swan. That's his wannabe girlfriend. That's the girl that pulled him out of the ocean when he was a child. That's been his crush for his young and adult life. That's why he is so emotionally invested in what's going on, more so than just Jack, who is trying to save his skin. You know, Will Turner actually says his personality trait in there, too, or at least something that could be a personality trait of his. He makes all the swords in that blacksmith shop, and he practices with them three hours a day. That is a great personality trait. How many other blacksmiths, much less blacksmiths in Port Royal, could say that? Yeah, Uh, it tells you that not only is he skilled at his trade, because there's a bunch of swords in there that he's been making, he practiced them three hours a day, which shows that he is dedicated. But also, as Jack points out, that he has a lot of free time on his hands. He's (laughs) able to practice three hours a day because he's otherwise incapable of wooing said strumpet. Yeah, he needs to find himself a girl mate. All right, so let's let's back up a little bit in the fight. Uh, Jack taunts Will. Will is preventing him from escaping. And this is perhaps the best character moment for me in the entire film, is when Jack tricks Will into circling him around the blacksmith shop so that he is on the side with the door, goes to make his escape, and Will throws his sword not at the exposed and unprotected back of the pirate, which could certainly have killed him. But no, Will is not that kind of man. Instead, he uses the sword to prevent the door from being opened. Right. So that Jack can't get away, but more importantly, that he's trapped in there with him. Right. You know, I never really thought about that. And so we had that discussion prior to launching this podcast. Uh, But that is a very telling point at which Will Turner shows restraint. And Jack actually has one of those as well. Yes. uh, As the fight carries on, Will at least becomes invested in the fight to the point where he's unwilling, even with the changing terrain, to disengage from Jack. He wants to prove that he is better than this pirate, that he is better than these people. But Jack still just wants to escape. But there are things that he's not willing to do to make that happen. He has a pistol on his belt that would make quick work of Will, but he has promised to use that bullet elsewhere. That shot was not meant for Will. Right, and he is bonded to Captain Barbosa. And that quest for revenge could be considered his flaw. You could also say that in the interest of Captain Jack Sparrow's bonds, you could also say that he is certainly bonded to Pearl. Of course, Uh, and that is demonstrated you know, throughout later points, conversations, and even combats in the movie. Right, but specifically this combat, you can tell that it's when he says that this shot was not meant for you, it is meant for someone, and that person is one of Jack's priorities. He is so invested in this that right before that line, he tells Will to move, and then begs him, please move. I don't want to shoot you. I don't want to kill you. I don't want to take this kind of time on you because I've got other places to be and another guy to shoot. And it is important to him not that Captain Barbosa die. 
not that Captain Barbosa die by his hand, but that Captain Barbosa die with the bullet that he himself gave to Jack. That is a great goal for a morally ambiguous anti-hero pirate that is Jack Sparrow. Agreed. And every action he takes throughout the movie is in service to the goal of taking this very particular form of revenge against his former first mate. So, so far, we have talked a little bit about what makes up a motivation for a character, whether this is a PC or an NPC. Uh, It involves their personality traits, which is something that makes them unique and is telling about them as a character, their ideals, which is their driving force, their worldview, the one thing in their life that they will not compromise on, a bond, which is a link between them and another character, place, or organization, uh, which they hold dear as a priority, whether in a positive or negative light, and flaws, which are the bullet in the DM's gun, the Achilles heel for your character's psyche, and a way to unlock atypical behavior from that character. We've looked at how these same motivations can change depending on the situation uh, based on what action best befits (laughs) their personality traits, ideals, bonds, and flaws in that specific situation. And we've also given you a great example of how character motivation and detail can be revealed not just during combat, but through combat. And now we have a really terrible idea. Rob and I have both generated random characters, and we're going to put them in a couple of combat situations and see how their motivations might play out. Uh, Rob, why don't you start by telling us about the character that uh, you were randomly given? Yeah, so uh, we went to fastcharacter.com. It is a great way to completely generate a character in seconds. Uh, If you don't need one that is customized to your exacting detail, it'll give you everything that you need to run the character from choosing your spells for you to your class, to your race, to what equipment and magic items they have on them, to how much gold is in their pockets, and provide them with a randomly generated personality trait, ideal, bond, and flaw. So the character that I got dealt is the Hill Dwarf wizard, Dooley Tunarth. And Dooley Tunarth has the following personality traits, ideal bonds and flaws. He comes from a family of merchants and seeks a lost relic. Uh, His ideal is that he's just in it for the money. Uh, He is out to discredit a guild rival. That is his bond. And he sabotaged a rival business and they are out to get him for it that was his flaw and uh you got something quite different i believe i do uh this by the way this process was hilarious because normally i spend days making a character but i just clicked a couple of buttons and i have gars the astounding he is a level four half orc warlock whose otherworldly patron is that which sees the psionic aberration demigod who's granted him the great old one pact. He is 30 years old. He is chaotic good. And uh, he has the trait lies for no reason. Yep. He's a compulsive liar who is also in love with the demon. 
His ideal is that he never repeats the same con. His bond is that he was seduced by a royal with whom he keeps in touch. And his flaw is that he could never resist a pretty face. So wonder, he's a lover he, and a fighter. Is he really in love with the demon? Or is that just one of the lies he tells? Uh, no one will ever know. I would, I would totally play this character at some point. Um, but we're not talking about how we would play them as much as we're talking about how we would role play them so let's drop these guys into a couple of combat Ooh. scenarios and find Word out play. how they would respond i have All two right. here do you want to start or do you want me to start uh let's go ahead and start with guards the astounding okay all right so uh you are tasked uh guards the astounding you and the rest of the party are infiltrating a masquerade ball and you know that the villain uh, responsible for the burning of the town of Shadyvale is here at this party, and they will be wearing a fox mask. Okay. And you see this individual with their entourage, and they pass into a side room. You and the other members of the party follow them into that room. The barbarian locks the door behind you, trapping them in with you, and it is time for them to account for their crimes. The entourage draws steel and charges you, and initiative is rolled. You find yourself in the middle of the fray, toe-to-toe, against the fox-masked villain. As your, let's see, you're a warlock? Mm-hmm. I'm a great old one-packed warlock. All right, surely every good warlock has Eldritch Blast. I do. All right. As you cast this missile of arcane force at the fox-masked villain, it sends the mask flying, and you see a strikingly gorgeous woman of your own age with flowing blonde locks of hair, and you are momentarily stunned by the beauty of her visage. When your next turn comes up, how will you act? I'm afraid that we're just going to have to take this girl alive. <laughs> She's uh, responsible for the burning of Shady Vale. Yeah, well, you know, I'm sure that there is a uh, perfectly lawful way for her to stand trial for her crimes. Um, you know, if she was to ask me to provide her some sort of aid in escaping, um, I'm not saying that Garz the Astounding would automatically fall for it, but he'd have to hear her out. Right, yeah, just uh, anything for a few more moments watching those luscious lips moving and let's face it if uh if she made a compelling enough argument for getting out of there or if she told him that all of this stuff was just some big misunderstanding that uh, we had been set up he'd have to hear her out and if he had to explain it away gosh darn it he could that's right maybe there was someone else maybe there were more than one fox mask at the party maybe we've got it wrong guys yeah i mean it's at least an option. It's at least worth considering because how could someone seem, who looks this beautiful harbor such evil in their heart? And this may seem detrimental and it may seem like it's not in the party's best interest, but you're role-playing the flaw in this case. And role-playing the flaw is never in the party's best interest. <laughs> it's either not in the party's best interest or it's not in yours. And that's why you put it in there. It's like you said, it's the bullet in the DM's gun as long as they care to read it. DMs, if you don't read anything else about your character's page, 
read their ideals and their flaws. And again, you know, this is not to say that just because he can't resist a pretty face doesn't mean he's going to automatically absolve the woman of all of her crimes or believe every word that she says. But it does, at least in my case, mean that he's not going to kill her on sight and that he will give her the chance to explain herself. So let's get up a uh, situation for your character to be put in. And pardon me that mine are not tailored to your flaws because I am not the improv master that you have practiced to be. <laughs> so your party is escorting, what's his name again? Dooley. Dooley and his party are escorting Jack and Jill to the gingerbread house in the woods. They're in the middle of fighting off a family of three bears on the troll bridge when suddenly the big bad wolf himself arrives, blocking your escape. He offers to kill the bears for you so that you can run, but you'd have to leave the children behind with him. If you don't, he'll try to steal them away while you're occupied with the bears. He's notorious for eating specifically young children. The bears are fierce and you may be able to fend them off, but now with the addition of the big bad wolf, your party is outnumbered and surrounded and defending them will be difficult. How would you respond in this situation? So Dooley is just in it for the money. That's mm -hmm. his ideal. So he may just want to kill the biggest baddest thing around because there's a bounty on it if there's a bounty out on the big bad wolf he was going to drop everything unconcerned with all the other events that are going on in this scene just be eager to collect on that or if the wolf is planning to steal people away he can get away with it if he you know makes a contribution to Dooley's uh, research grant. But what if the person that Jack and Jill are going to meet at the gingerbread house is actually a powerful witch who has offered your party a substantial reward for delivering them safely? Uh, then come hell or high water, nothing is stopping young Dooley Tunarth from making sure that Jack and Jill make it to that gingerbread house. <laughs> and these are two very different situations. Obviously, the one that Rob presented to Gars is tailor-made to mess with this character. And the player who is controlling Gars has, if they're going to role-play the character that's on their sheet correctly, has a little bit more limited options. Whereas the situation that I presented to Dooley is, you know, a little bit more broad. It doesn't particularly pertain to gold in and of itself but you know you're in a party with a bunch of other player characters maybe this appeals to one of their bonds but it's still important to think about how you might react as this character to them and i encourage dungeon masters as you are planning encounters for the people at your table to find a way to tempt or tease out one of the ideals or flaws of your character's Maybe not in every combat, but add it as something that you want to do fairly regularly. Because interacting with the character's motivations in this way is, at the very least, dramatic. And it will encourage them to behave in ways that complicate and build the story that you're telling together. And honestly... Drama is why I play this game now. Sure, it started yeah. because uh, I wanted to hit some stuff and explore a new game. And I am obsessed with 
whatever the next game is um and try out something new roll some dice do some math kill some stuff but i think that the real potential of dungeons and dragons lies in the role playing and it lies in the drama um and we're going to be talking about that more in other episodes about how you can add some drama to your games if that's what you're looking for well we hope that you have found something interesting or something informative as we talked a little bit about role-playing in combat and what it means to act out your character's motivations through combat, which is always a very important aspect of the game and a very time-consuming one. Uh, I would argue that on a night that you have combat, you spend maybe, if you play as long as we do, it's a good 25 to 50 percent of your evening that you're going to spend in combat and if you're not role-playing them during that time you've just lost half of your time in a role-playing game and spent it not role-playing so it's very important to take that into consideration the entirety of the time that you're playing the game no less in combat certainly and sometimes more than that of your night you know on a good dungeon crawl you might not have a lot of breaks from the action and if you're not playing then, or not role-playing then, when are you role-playing? Well, that about sums up everything that we had to discuss in this episode. Thank you so much for stopping by and uh, giving us the benefit of uh, letting us share some of our opinions <laughs> with you. Uh, if you actually valued those opinions, then uh, where might someone be able to find more of them? Uh, I am D&D Wannabe on Twitter. You can reach me there for my opinions or to ask me questions uh also i write modules as a hobby uh they are for sale on mistymountaingaming.com and i regularly contribute articles uh my contributions to dungeon dragons philosophy or little tips to help you improve your game uh, on their dungeon feed and if you want to hear any more of my opinions then you'll just have to come back for the next episode. Until then, I'm Steve. And I'm Rob. And we really appreciate you stopping by. See you next time. The outro music you're listening to right now is called Mega Epic, and the intro music is called Super Epic. Both were composed by the wonderfully talented Alexander Nakarada and utilized under a Creative Commons license. You can find more of his music at serpentsoundstudios.com. If you enjoyed our content, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on your listening app of choice. To keep up with us on social media, look us up on facebook.com forward slash bardic twinspiration and on Twitter at btwinspiration. Want to interact with us directly? Come join our Discord. After all, who are we if not people who are willing to roll the dice on making some new friends? Links in the description. Come check it out. Yeah, I know that as a player, I have felt, you know, a little bit cheated, a little bit robbed before if, <laughs> not to make a pun on your name, but yeah, mm. I felt a little bit robbed before when someone... I feel a little robbed every day. <laughs> that sounds dirty. If you cut that. <laughs> <sighs> the quality content that you come here for every week. <laughs>